Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to the podcast, Byzantium and Friends. I am Anthony, your host. I'll have you know that the translation of Nikiforos Grigoras is coming along at a fairly good clip. It is 1,700 pages long, but uh, he's a wonderful writer. The prose is just a treat for the mind. And I'm actually using the original 1829 edition from the library, which, for some reason, let me take it home. And, uh, you know, curiously, at the back it has one of those slips that they used in the old days to check out books. This system was phased out around 1990, but the last person who checked out this volume has written his name as Vrionis. So, yes, that is our own Spiros Vrionis uh, in 1987. I don't know what he was doing here in Chicago. Probably Walter had invited him for a seminar or, you know, fellowship or something like that. Okay, let's get down to business. Medieval Europe. What is it exactly? All right, I'll start with some general observations about how the field of medieval studies appears odd to me from my perspective, which I will explain in a moment. And it seems odd in the following way, that each region of medieval Europe is studied primarily by scholars in the modern language that occupies the roughly same geographical linguistic area, right? So studies of, you know, medieval Germany are mostly done in Germany, medieval France, mostly in France, and so forth. The converse is also true. In other words, in most countries of Europe, the majority of medieval research that takes place takes place on what is taken to be the national medieval history, um, right? So the medieval phase of that country's history, however that is configured and understood or invented. Together, those two phenomena are what my guest today calls the siloing of medieval studies into these national paradigms that are ultimately very teleological. The fact that medievalists are constantly having to push back against this teleology, that is the narrative that all these societies were heading toward their modern forms, they indicates how powerful that model actually is in the um, organization and overall contours of medieval research. It remains a very powerful model. Quick note, there are two countries that produce a great deal of research on, let's say, Western medieval Europe that do not follow this paradigm, and those obviously the United States, uh, which in a certain sense doesn't have its own silo in the medieval past, really, and the United Kingdom. Uh, So this was brought to my attention actually by a colleague who corrected me on this point. If you look at the scholarship done by medievalists in Britain, it really does range all over uh, the rest of the continent. So it's not entirely British or English fixated, though there is obviously a larger uh, proportion of studies of, of, you know, medieval England and Britain than in other countries. Okay, now I said that this appears odd to me, and that's because of my perspective. So I study a particular state and society 
which is fairly easy to define, you know, what it is, you know, on the map at any period you can find who is and who is not part, you know, of the Eastern Roman Empire. And that is an international field where we all have the same materials, we're all studying the same thing. It's not really studied as the medieval phase of any one particular society. Asterisk here, there are more Byzantinists in Greece than in any other country, for sure. But the field is not configured that way. There are no Byzantinists, at least outside of Greece, who think of, quote, Byzantium as the medieval phase of national Greek history. And even in Greece, they are a minority, I, I believe. My other field is classics. And classics is also very similar in this regard, in that, you know, that's the material. We all study the same material. And, you know, classics is assumed to be a kind of vague background template or matrix of Western or European society or whatever, claims that we should push back against because they're not true or particularly helpful at this time. But apart from so regional schools of studying classics in different countries, you know, it, it is still a fairly coherent field in how it approaches its material and its questions. So medieval studies is odd in one additional way, which is that no one is entirely clear where the limits or the borders of the medieval world were. In the practice of the field, you know, in terms of what sorts of studies get published under a medieval rubric or are presented at conferences and so on, it's mostly Western Europe or Northwestern Europe. Spain and Scandinavia have recently sort of broken into the club. There's always perpetual tension about whether the Eastern Roman Empire can be admitted to the club and whether it can be admitted under its true name and identity. But when it comes to expanding the field further, the next phase of expansion does not appear to be incremental. For example, let's include you know, sort of Slavic Eastern Europe or the Rus or whatever, but rather to reach for the global, right? So you've all heard of the global Middle Ages. This is a project that was pioneered uh, some 20 years ago and has gained some momentum. Um, Geraldine Hang uh, is important in its formulation and has written a recent Cambridge Elements uh, book. It's a mini graph uh, that explains the concept and its origins and what it can and can't do. And some of the problems of it, you know, like extending the you know, Western European term medieval to the rest of the world is uncomfortably colonialist in a certain way. But be that as it may, it is a global project. So my guest today is taking a somewhat different approach to this same problem, um, one that is not incompatible with the others that I've mentioned, but it has its own dimensions. He is Christian Raffensperger from Wittenberg University, and we had him on episode seven, actually, um, an earlier book of his that uh, was pointing towards some of the themes that he develops in his current book, which we'll be, we will be discussing today. Uh, that book is called Rulers and Rulership in the Arc of Medieval Europe, 1000 to 1200, which talks about an expanded Christian Europe that is taking all medieval Christian cultures into its orbit and finding some extraordinary similarities that um, 
you know, their political cultures shared. And what Christian is very keen on deconstructing is how we take normative models from Western Europe, from France, from Britain, and expect other contemporary Christian cultures to adhere to those models or else they become sort of illegible or have to be treated as strange and exotic and weird or just are not factored into our models because they can't fit with the sort of French or British or even medieval German imperial model. If I ask you to think about a medieval king or medieval queen or a medieval dynasty or royal succession, you will probably intuitively think of something from those lands and not from, say, Portugal or Scandinavia or Constantinople or, you know, Kiev. And he's here to change all that by describing a number of common practices without assuming that their Western European forms are the normative ones that we should be using as our litmus tests, right? So, for example, when it comes to who is a king, right? what is a king, and what terminology do we expect to find in our sources in order to call someone a king or an emperor, right? Whose definition of an emperor are we following when if we look simply to the titles, there are lots of emperors in medieval Europe, but we only designate a few of them that way. Why? In my mind, I am tempted to give Christian the moniker the kingmaker, so, because he presents a, a Europe full of kings, and it's also a fuller Europe, too. It's not just the Western medieval core. Okay, I have spoken enough for now. Thanks, as always, to Medievalists.net for reposting these episodes. This one will be of particular interest to those, who, those of you who download the episodes from there. Here is my discussion with Christian the Kingmaker. Hello, Christian. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So I remember when I was a teenager and I was reading, well, let's just say fantasy literature, but like Tolkien in particular. And I remember, so Tolkien drew these maps that are still being used in the editions of his work. So these are very evocative maps, and they kind of allow you to visualize Middle Earth and all of that. And I remember, I was always curious about what was not on the map off to the east. Mm -hmm. I was like, why are we focusing on this part of the world? <laughs> um, the people right? from the east are, are, are were dark in his words. They were bad. The Easterners were always the problem. Yes. The dark men of Harad. I remember them. Uh-huh. Yes. And I was—I remember thinking, who are these guys? Like, what's their story? <laughs> anyway, and I kind of think that you're taking on something like this with medieval Europe. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, I mean, I still show this um, map all the time from a very popular uh, medieval history textbook that has two pages. And you know how much it costs the publisher to do two pages of a map. Yes. And one is completely blank. <laughs> it's just geography. There's no <laughs> labels. And in fact, that's where they put the key. And so I ask my students, you know, where is Roos on this map? And they're like, isn't it behind the key? I'm like, that's right. <laughs> it's hidden by the key. <laughs> right. There's So there's France and Britain and Germany, maybe. And then there be Slavs here. That's right. <laughs> Okay. Um, right. So, you know, it's not um, unrelated to that instinct I had when looking at those maps. The fact that I work on 
Byzantium, right? Like it was part of this, like, well, what came after? Like, I'm, I was always kind of curious, like, why does the story stop where it's supposed to stop? Um, and what, what, what really did come after? Anyway, all right. So you're, you're looking at a um, broader medieval Europe. You're trying to create um, a framework for the study of an inclusive, broader medieval Europe. Um, so let's talk about your most recent book um, specifically and, and some of the terminology that you use. So what is the arc of medieval Europe and how is it different from what you call, sometimes in quotation marks, medieval Europe? So is there an, a, a core and arc distinction here? It, you know, what, what do you um, how are you setting this framework up? Yeah, so I'm really trying to avoid a core periphery argument. Uh, medieval Europe in quotation marks is what we typically refer to as medieval Europe in the scholarship, which is, of course, Western or even Northwestern medieval Europe. Um, and you, know, you can see in any number of books that are, you know, X topic in medieval Europe. And then between the covers, what you'll find is France, England, maybe Germany um, and nothing else. And yet the publisher, the author, everybody's completely fine with calling it medieval Europe as if it was the whole. Uh, and so what I wanted to do was to do something that would not create uh, an easy to get rid of label. So the arc of medieval Europe extends from Iberia north to Ireland across Scandinavia and down through Central and Eastern Europe to the Roman Empire. Um, that way it can uh, not fit into Slavic studies, Byzantine studies, Scandinavian studies uh. easily. Right. It can bridge all of these different groups, which. Um, you know, of course, the, the flip side of that doesn't fit in also means that a lot of people were like, wait, why are you doing this? Um, and, and I wanted to show that this was territorially, obviously, population wise, the breadth of medieval Europe. And we got a lot of really interesting stuff going on there that is both similar to and different than the core territory of what we usually talk about as medieval Europe. Right. And one of the things that your book does well, and I think it was necessary for the argument to succeed is to have thematic approaches and to tackle different regions of the arc in each chapter so that they're not segregated by chapter because that's the whole point, the siloing that you've complained about often. I've heard you talk about it, right. um, especially with like Scandinavian history siloed here and East Roman and, and, and Slav, but rather you take themes about like rulership and titles and, you know, and relations with monasteries and gender and so forth. And you kind of weave this thread around the entire arc. Uh, so thinking of medieval Europe like a donut, I mean, you're you're the filling and the whole is, quote, medieval Europe. Yeah. Um, but I assume um, you expect that these themes also apply to um, traditional medieval Europe, right? It's like you're just extending them to the arc. Is that right? Yeah. And what I would really like is I would like for uh, I mean, to continue your metaphor and shift it maybe to gears. Right. So that the medieval Europe in the middle acts as a gear and this arc will then fit on top of it and they can then turn together and work together because wow. there are places. Um, I mean, maybe I'm pushing the metaphor. There are places where the arc and the ideas I'm developing will shift the normative argument of medieval Europe and other places where we see the same stuff going on in the arc as we see in medieval Europe. And so it should interpenetrate. I certainly do not want to create yet another discursive category to create a whole new avenue of arc of medieval Europe books. I really just want people to be thinking outside of those silos. And one of the silos really is, quote unquote, medieval Europe. 
Yes, because you bring up, for example, the kings of France um, in many of the chapters saying, you know, it's not that different in what was what was going on in Paris or or even Britain or, or so forth, so forth. Um, so I, I really see your project as integrative in that way mm-hmm. um, and dispelling a lot of the maybe exoticism that has um, uh, th- this kind of idea that these regions are um, exotic or, or weird or difficult to understand that has caused them to be excluded. Now, this is a very big topic and, you know, we don't have time to, t- you know, talk about it exhaustively and you've talked about it in many other places, but why has the arc been traditionally excluded from quote medieval Europe? You know, I mean, this goes back to the historiography and, uh, all the way back to the early modern period. And certainly, you know, I've learned so much from reading your work about the creation of the idea of Byzantium um, and the othering of that world. And, you know, you could go back to the early 20th century with the creation of the Cambridge Medieval History, where Bury sections off Byzantium and the Eastern uh, European Mm. world into a volume by itself. And he says in the introduction, I did this because they don't ever interact with the rest of medieval Europe, except for the Crusades. Mm. and Rus gets a chapter in there, um, you know, Bulgaria gets some chapters in there, uh, but, but that's the entire world. And then, of course, in the 20th century, we see developments of that with Obolensky and the Byzantine Commonwealth and things like that. But, you know, I think we could, if we really wanted to, we could all go all the way back to decline and fall um, and, and talk about some of those issues about why there is this separation. Um, the other thing that really happens, so that's mostly for the territories that I work on normally, the Eastern European part, but Scandinavianists, um, you know, have their own historiography as well. And so they have not just a medieval period, they have a Viking period that they also want to deal with. And those are conceptually different for them. Mm. Um, I, Iberia has existed, uh, you know, as its own historiographical area for a long time, and it's certainly been integrated more into medieval Europe in the last 20 years. Yeah. Um, there are amazing people doing work there who are trying to make that happen. Um, but also the the new drive to do uh, Islam and integrate Islam into medieval Europe um, certainly has helped Iberia get integrated. Yeah, so each of these cases probably presents its own problems. Um, I've actually been reading a lot about um, Spain in the and its imperial period recently, and I'm getting the impression that historiographically, the kind of black legend, right, um, of Spain played quite a, a role in excluding it from sort of traditional historiography, right? So this idea that it was this um, basically evil empire, the Mongols of Europe in, in some discussions, um, you know, driven by the Inquisition, kind of intolerant um, and, you know, Catholic kind of think of the the to use another to use a sci fi comparison is like the emperor in Star Wars, kind of like this black hooded evil figure who's plotting, you know, the destruction of the rest of Europe. And this kind of led to Spain kind of being marginalized. Um, but you're right. It has now been um, reintegrated. But other cases are different, like Eastern Europe. Um there's, there's this book by, is it Wolf, I think, on the construction of the idea of Eastern Europe? Yeah, Larry Especially Wolf. like the, the Enlightenment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what, yeah, so he focuses on the Enlightenment. Um, there's a guy, Paul Milliman at Arizona, um, who pushes back uh, further and says that already in the late medieval period, there are people talking about Eastern Europe as a different kind of other sort of thing. Uh, but he's largely a Polonist, and so it's interesting, too, because... If we're talking about medieval Europe, some people, in fact, I was just reading this morning, um, 
you know, identify Christianitas with medieval Europe and what they mean by Christianitas is the Latin speaking world. And yet, you know, apart from a few relatively recent examples and Bjorn Weiler being a notable one, um, even Latin speaking areas, Latin writing areas like Poland usually are left out of that that normative medieval Europe. Yeah. You know, to say nothing of things like the Church of the East, which, right, right so like the, in modern, what is modern, you know, Iraq and so forth, which in some periods of like early medieval history has more Christians in it than France, probably. I mean, that's yeah. a much, much larger church and it extends into Central Asia and so forth. When the Caucasus, I mean, you know, Armenia and Georgia, I mean, they get yeah, left yeah. out of so many of these narratives. They don't fit my narratives. I mean, I don't bring them in, at least. Um, they certainly don't fit traditional medieval European narratives. I mean, I don't know. Do they fit into to some other narrative that I don't know about? No. Um, no, no. They're largely sort of excluded. I mean, the Church of the East is very difficult to find in historiography. You have to just yeah. look at dedicated uh, scholarship on it. Um, so let's look at some of the things that your book does. Uh, because it is on rulers and rulership. And so you examine thematically a number of um, topics such as titles, um, co-rulership, which I found that was very interesting. And the, the East Roman um, model there is very you know close to my work. Um, succession, the church, monasticism, and, and so forth. Um, and one pattern that I see in your argument is that you find that in scholarship on medieval Europe, there's this kind of normative model that's extracted from, I don't know, let's say, you know, France or Britain or whatever. And it's understood that this is how titles work or this is how succession works normatively. Um, and so every everyone else is sort of judged according to that standard um, or treated as deviant or excluded because it doesn't fit the framework at all. Um, so let's talk, um, or maybe could you say like what that normative model looks like in the case of say imperial titles or succession and how you disrupt those uh, models? Sure. Um, you know, there's so much to talk about that. Uh, one of the, the things relevant to co-rulership, which you mentioned, uh, is this idea that the Piasts in France invented uh, co-rulership and succession. Um, you know, uh, appropriating a, a ruler as your successor. Um, and if you read the, the traditional medieval studies scholarship, you'll see when Denmark, you know, they, they did this and it was the Piast model and they did this in this other place and it's the Piast model. Um, but it's not, right? I mean, the Byzantines were doing co-rulership. I mean, the Romans, right, were doing co-rulership a long before all of this. And, uh, you know, Robert Bartlett in his recent Blood Royal points out, um, a great medieval source that says, in fact, this is the Byzantine way of doing things, the Roman way of doing things. So it's the historiography that's created the impression that it is a uh, a French way of doing things. I think I said Pias before, but uh, it's the Capetian. I apologize. Yeah. That's who I was talking about. Um, but it's the Capetian way of doing things. And, and it's not. But the historiography has created that normative uh, sense that that's what it is. And titles in the medieval world were flexible and I think fungible things. And we as moderns are really stuck on structure and form and organization. Uh, you know, succession is one of the chapters in there. And, and I think we are really hung up on succession being a system. 
Um, you know, I know for Roos in particular, so much ink has been spilled over, okay, it's collateral succession, it has to be three brothers, but not a fourth brother, and then it can do this, and then what if this happens? So all these rules get added in. I don't think they had those rules. And so Ofa of Mercia calls himself uh, Basuleus uh, Anglorum, but we never call him <laughs> uh, emperor. Right? Basileus is usually translated as emperor. Charlemagne, a contemporary of Ofa's, you know, calls himself a few times imperator, but mostly calls himself rex. But we love calling him emperor Charlemagne. Um, these, the historiography gets to choose uh, what titles we use. And Scandinavia is, is a terrific example because in the primary sources, it's all conan, right? So this, this word that is cognate to king. And yet, if you read the secondary literature, they're chiefs, they're princes, they're dukes, they're kings. And, and often it's determined by who was the ancestor of a guy who became king later on. If you were not the ancestor of a guy who became king, well, then clearly you were just a noble. Yes. Yes. Um, so I love that you do that. You populate medieval Europe, arc and core, whatever, with many, many more emperors. Yeah. Th than traditional historiography admits, right? So there are uh, rulers in Spain who claim imperial titles. There are rulers in Britain or England, uh, as you mentioned, that claim it. And yet the scholarship is always like, well, Charlemagne and you know the the Ger the German Reich and so forth. And yeah. the the two emperor problem is something between the Germans and Constantinople. That's right. Except yeah. for all the other self-claimed emperors. Right, yeah. right. Which I think is really a Roman problem, right? It's the two Roman emperor problem, if you want to be specific about it. It's not really the two emperor problem. And there's a question about whether it's really a problem. Um, you bring this up. Um, there are many precedents in the Roman tradition going back to the second century of having two emperors at the same time. Mm -hmm. uh, the position can be duplicated. Um and and thereafter, in the East Roman tradition, they're often co-emperors. There's not a problem per se with having two emperors until you get into some very um, like theological interpretations of the Western imperial position uh -huh. that claim this version of sovereignty that, you know, that ultimately leads to modern theories of sovereignty that you have only one like indivisible and absolute power and, and God's so vice region on earth kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. These things come, uh, these theories come about after the period that you're talking about. So like mostly mm -hmm. after 1200. Um, I mean, there's some precedence before that. Um, but uh, yeah, as you point out, Constantinople didn't really have much of a problem in someone else in the West being imperator. I mean, it was, that was a matter of status and it's like if they thought you were like of you know comparable status then fine um it was the roman part that that problem you know that was a problem as you point out right but i like also that you find kings everywhere yeah yeah there's kings everywhere and it's so interesting too because everybody a lot of what i'm doing is not pointing out things that people don't know is that they don't pay attention to or care about um, so, you know, there are good articles uh, and, and books that talk about emperors in Byzantium. Um, you know, they call it Byzantium. Um, and they note that there's co-rulership, but then they leave those people aside. Um, in Ireland, and I mean, we can talk in more depth about the Ireland chapters, uh, but the Ireland uh, example, we see 
uh, <laughs> this great article on uh, Irish kingship, which says, you know, there there are co-rulers in Ireland, but really it's not normal. But then lists dozen plus examples of co-rulership, um, which seems to undercut that. So, I mean, there are a lot of things that that if we really start to put the pieces together, the normative model of lineal succession of the dominance of primogeniture of one ruler at a time um, really starts to crumble when we look at a broader medieval Europe. So is there, um, are modern states running interference here a little bit? In other words, is is there a, perhaps in the back of our minds, we're thinking that something like France can have only one king, something like Britain can have only one king. And then when you find a few dozens of them in Ireland or, you know, in Kiev and Rus or whatever, it starts to look weird that these can't be kings because, right, our instinct is that there can be only one. That's right. So yeah, they the must Highlander. be, they, yes, they must be dukes or barons or whatever, right? That's right. And I get that pushback all the time. I mean, I wrote a book, uh, Kingdom of Rus, a number of years ago, where I first made the argument that the title of the ruler of Rus should be king. And that was the big pushback from, from medievalists and from Slavists is like, how can there be multiple kings? <laughs> and I'm like, actually, there can. And, you know, if you look at medieval Europe, you've got them there, too. And it's only now that I've gotten to the the, the point where I've been able to write more about that and, and put those pieces in conversation. And I think part of it, Anthony, is that um, so often we live in those silos and in isolation. And so we see something happening in our little silo and we're like, oh, okay, that's kind of different. Maybe it's just us, right? Um, but when you start looking at all the silos and you keep seeing the same different kinds of things, it's, wait, no, there actually is a larger pattern that's occurring mm. here. Uh, which is pretty interesting. And what you have on your side are the sources. I, I should state this because it's very important. Yes. You're not finding these kings in, in the sense that you're arguing that they were. This is what they were called. Yeah. And so you're pushing back against scholarship that kind of translates or ignores those terms in favor of a kind of a modern model that likes to have fewer kings and more barren aristocrats or nobles or whatever. Right. And yeah, the sources so, use those terms. I mean, the yes. sources use these words and then we get translations where, you know, the, the uh, 12th century, early 13th century uh, Chronicle of Henry of Livonia calls uh, its Latin text, calls all of these Russian leaders Rex. Uh, in the English translation, there's notes for each one saying, you know, these aren't really kings. <laughs> They're really princes. Right. And and I know I, I know the translator why I imagine the translator meant well and was utilizing the current scholarship. But but I actually think that that's part of the problem is that we utilize the scholarship and we cite good things and we cite good things and we stop questioning um, and we need to go back mm -hmm. and question. And in fact, you know, your piece uh, on the Notitia Dignitatum um, uh, in the new military book that you wrote. Yeah. Uh, I forget your co-author's name. I apologize. Marion Cruz. Yeah. Marion Cruz. That's right. Um, is exactly that. I was listening to that podcast and it, like, that's exactly the same thing. No one had questioned this. They accepted it. And so then you end up with that 500 page German book trying to make sense of how the organization happens. Um, uh. But that you really do need to question where is this material coming from? Go back to the primary sources and see what's there. And that allows you to skip over maybe a whole several generations of scholarship um but you can come back to that right but the primary sources is where you need to start yeah so what does modern scholarship think a medieval king 
is such that when we see these other rulers referred to in the sources as kings, be it Rex or the local vernacular equivalent, we, or we, I mean, you know, medieval scholars feel authorized often very easily to say, no, no, this doesn't mean what it's saying. It means something else. Yeah, it's because, and I write this in the book, that we've equated in English king with monarch. Uh, monarch, of course, is sole ruler, so that if a king is a monarch, there can only be one. Um, and we really need to detach that meaning. That is uh, an accretion that came through from the early modern period, and it just doesn't exist in the medieval world. We don't have the sense there that there can only be one king at a time. So your picture, i.e. the picture you find in the sources, if you accept the titles that they use, is much messier. So messy. It's totally right. messy, and it's super complex. Um, and, and I think that that should be okay, because one of the things I think we're bad at as scholars is we can write these really detailed books um, that acknowledge the complexity of the medieval world, and then we go into the classroom, uh, or we try and talk to the public, and we're back to talking about uh, Richard the Lionheart and as a great king, and, and like, okay, what about his mom who was ruling for him, or what, you know, what about all these other things that are going on? We're not great at taking the complexity that we see in our own specific scholarship and translating it to the narrative for a broader audience, and I think that's actually one of the things that's caused so many problems in academia. You know, there was a study pretty recently that showed public confidence uh, in higher education is at an all-time low. Um, you know, this is something that I think we need to do more to proactively get involved uh, via public humanities. Um, and complexity, it's tough. I get it, right? But I think people would rather have that story it was accurate than a simplified story, you know, George Washington chopping down the cherry tree, that sort of thing. Yeah. So we might be digressing here, but you think the loss <laughs> of you think the loss of confidence might be due to um, insufficient complexity or to the opposite, possibly that we sometimes um, complicate things so much that the general public either can't understand what we're saying or thinks that we're trying to trick it. Uh, you're right. I think it could go both directions, or I think it could be a combination of both things. The other thing I would say is that um, there is a lot of there are a lot of things that academics really care about um, and invest a lot of time and study in that the general public has no concept of why that's important. Right. Um, and so we maybe need to do a better job of explaining why that's important. So you know, I wrote a book um, earlier this year about Rus. Um, and it was from Kiev and Rus to Ukraine. And it's just one of these little small format books. And what I was trying to do was I was trying to utilize the Ukrainian war um, to talk about why it's important that we think about Rus as part of medieval Europe. Because if we conceptualize medieval Europe as extending through to Ukraine, our conception of Europe um, is bigger, right? right? And that's going to affect how we feel about people who are under attack in Europe uh, versus areas that are not Europe. Right. Yeah, though, I have the suspicion that this um, sudden extension of Europe to include Ukraine right now, and I'm not saying it's sudden in the sense that it doesn't have precedence, but that it's all over the news all of a sudden, um, is strategic and instrumental for the purpose of, of this war. And I'm not sure that anyone who's making that claim is um, willing to back its commitments but for example, by taking them back into the Middle Ages or something like that, which would ultimately 
um, support your 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 advance your your project here of of having these areas included in medieval Europe. Um, yeah, this is always the problem when a current war brings attention to a region that's mm -hmm. usually kind of. I, I remember in the '90s with the war in the former Yugoslavia. That's right. Everyone was paying attention. As soon as that seemed to kind of settle down, gone. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, you know, when I uh, have been to areas of, of Bosnia and Serbia uh, and Croatia, you know, they one of the few people uh, are, know where I'm from because I tell them I'm from Ohio and they say, oh, Dayton, uh, because they remember <laughs> the, the Dayton Peace Accords. Yes, yes, um, I remember which, those. Which even people here have, you know, largely forgotten. So I remember those. Um, I actually um, was paying very close attention to that conflict, um, in part because um, my advisor at Michigan was John Fine, whom you know, right? Early medieval Balkans, late medieval Balkans. And um, he was actually cut out of all of those. <laughs> he, he, he tried to offer expert um, you know, advice on what was going on in Yugoslavia. He was one of the very few American experts in yeah. that region. And like nobody in the White House wanted to so I, so I remember once he he sent um, he wrote up a kind of memorandum kind of explaining some of the background to the uh, the conflict in Bosnia in particular. Now, he's remember, he's like the only ac American academic at the time who'd written a book on Bosnia. Let's just. OK. Yeah. And he was debunking a lot of the myths that were in the media and, you know, talking about things like the rates of mixed marriage and the, you know, the impact of 50 years of, you know, you know atheist you know, whatever communist rule, you know, and so forth. And he sent it to the relevant office in the Clinton White House, you know, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, what, what, what. And it was sent back to him with a stamp that said, address unknown. <laughs> yep. And he said he had a contact somewhere in one of the military academies, whatever, who said that that's their way of saying, just don't bother us. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, great. Yeah, we don't want experts involved in any of this. No, no. Anyway, okay. So you're definitely making the medieval world a lot messier when it comes to titles. And by the way, I, I, think, I think that's right. I, you know, I should say, I... Way back, I came at this issue from a kind of similar standpoint from where you are, because in part I was reading more literary sources, and literary sources, as you've probably found out, also on on, on the cultures that that you you work on, in addition to East Rome, are much more fluid in how they use terminology um, than, let's say, the courts themselves do. And it was gradually brought around to the view that there, to a certain degree, there is an official court protocol about, who, you know, who you call a king and who you don't and, and so forth, at least in Constantinople. And that the precise titles sometimes matter. And I was convinced of this. And then gradually I began to realize that even within the court protocols, there's considerable variation and um and and complexity um and that scholarship has like arbitrarily designated certain the titles that appear in certain places as quote official mm -hmm. and if they're not there they're not official and i don't yeah. think that that distinction really holds 
I think you're right. I mean, there's a, a really nice charter from Serbia from the early 13th century that talks about um, the uh, Basuleus, the crawl, the jupon. It uses all these different words. Mm. And then as it gets into it, it's cure this and cure that, right? So, I mean, it doesn't always have to be, you know, Basuleus this. Sometimes it's just Lord, you know, whoever. Um, yeah. And I think this actually flows back into the idea that I'm suggesting is that they were much more fluid about those things than we are in our hierarchical world. Yeah. Um, or at least our bureaucratized world where we fill out forms, right? And when you, once you start filling out forms, there are only so many correct answers. Yeah. And Yeah. And uh, what I mean, do you do? When you have to list a profession, what do you list? A profession? I don't know that I'm yeah. asked that. On your taxes, you should be asked profession. Oh, yes. I put, I put professor or university professor. That's right. Oh. I yeah. think I put historian. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, I don't know that they care, but like, I that's how I think of myself. So that's what I'm going to say. Interesting. See, I... I'm not sure that our employers are paying us to be historians only. I mean, they're paying us to do that, but they're also paying us to do other, insofar as this is a profession that is what you're paid to do or an occupation. They're paying us to do other things. And that's why I just put professor because it seems to be the, you're right. That's interesting. Maybe I'll, I'll experiment with that, but <laughs> anyway, so like what I have in mind is that Byzantinus, for example, have uh -huh. latched onto um, the titulature that appears in laws, like in the in in the preface of a law or something or a heading of a law, as being official, followed by maybe what appears on coins, that's not a hundred percent official because it's very abbreviated, and not, for example, what what appears on inscriptions sometimes, mm -hmm. and so you have this paradoxical consequence that. Heraclius is credited with being the first emperor to officially call himself Vasilevs, uh -huh. when in fact many, many emperors had done that for centuries before him, just not in their laws. Do you think that's a difference between history and maybe art history? Um, because historians have traditionally focused on textual sources to the exclusion of any material culture. Oh, interesting. Um, you know, I don't even think it's historians as such. I think it's people who work on um, like what the Germans call diplomatique, uh, that is the right, the chancery documents. And an, and an inscription that you find out in the middle of Asia Minor put up by a, lo a, a, a local city, you know, may or may not reflect official term. I don't know. Anyway. But yeah, this is part of the problem here. Like, and it comes up in your book repeatedly that certain practices are kind of identified as normative and taken to be the model that then you apply to the whole of medieval Europe, whereas in fact, you're creating a uh, quite a bit of a mess here because it yeah. was there always all along. Yeah. Um, let's talk about co-rulership a little bit. Um, can you first explain to us what that is? Um, so co-rulership at its base is simply when we have multiple rulers who are um, claiming the title, whatever that title is in that case, um, and they are at some level working together to administer a wider polity. 
Um, and that's a pretty generic definition that's going to cover a whole lot of things because within co-rulership, we can see situations like uh, in Rus, where we have multiple people with the same title, Kenyaz. Uh, in Ireland, we're going to have multiple people with the same title, Ri. Um, and, you know, there are, in Byzantium, of course, I mean, we talked about the Macedonians earlier, you and I, um, and we've got Basil II, famously, who is emperor for forever, and then Constantine VIII is only emperor for two years, you know, but actually they're both crowned as emperors from, you know, childhood. Um, yeah. Constantine VIII is the emperor the whole time, just as Basil II is the emperor the whole time. Yes. A list of rulers. So in, in the case of Constantinople, we're not actually listing the dates during which they held like the position of Vasilevs or Augustus or whatever it is, mm -hmm. which is often in many cases, much, much longer than the conventional dates. Those are just the dates when we uh, take them to be the, the chief sort of executive yeah. among the various members of the imperial college right that the guy in right. charge it's a subjective but it's subjective and and yeah. those emperors themselves looking at material culture are signaling to their populace that they're not alone i mean you mentioned heraclius earlier right heraclius appears on coins with his son with his uh, both his sons i mean uh you know basil the second and, and constantine the eighth have the famous coin where they're together um you know the the sisters zoe and theodora appear on a coin together i mean those are really public images of co-rulership um, and so they are ruling together that's that's why they're both grasping the staff even if one is higher than the other right so how does this complicate the way you view the arc of medieval europe uh I, again i think it goes back to the idea that there is a monarch a sole ruler in all of these places and that we need to look at the depth and interaction between those things um you know there are some some source material and certainly you know it better than i um, about Constantine VIII's involvement while Basil II is the chief uh, executive. Yeah. Um, so he's doing things. He's not just like waiting till Basil dies to, to do right. something. Um, and so what's going on there? Because typically you see, as you noted, right, that Basil's got these dates and Constantine's got these dates and then we move on. Yeah, yeah. The only practice I can think of off the top of my head that would sort of confirm the way we draw up lists of rulers is sometimes emperors will uh, will date events from the moment when they assumed the chief command, not the moment they were crowned. So that does happen sometimes. Yeah. Um, you know, Anna uh, in the Alexiad, um, you know, details multiple examples where when her father's taking power that uh, people, uh, you know, other potential usurpers um offer to be his co-ruler uh, mm. they're like okay just let me be your co-ruler and i won't do anything i just want to wear the purple shoes because yes, they're yes. so sweet right but i really i won't i won't bother you so i mean there is already some there's something about being the emperor even if you are the junior emperor or the silent partner oh his situation was so complicated uh -huh. in the so in the beginning i mean so there's alexius and then there is the, oh, it gets very complicated. But anyway, I mean, there's Maria of Alania, who is the, um, uh, well, she's not the widow, actually, because they're both alive, but the sort of ex-empress of the previous two ex-emperors. And she's also an empress. And her son with Michael VII 
is also an emperor and acknowledged by Alexis to be his heir, right? Though later on, also his son, right. Ioannis, you know, John II. And uh -huh. um, he designates his mother, Anna, to have de facto imperial powers while he's off fighting wars. Right. Just, and you have all of these other, you know, princes and so forth, and uh, people like Mikiforos Medusinos, who's who wants to be originally he wanted to be co-emperor, but he accepted the title of Caesar. And if you were to ask, if you were to go there and say, well, who is the Vasilis? Well, they'd probably say Alexis is the guy in charge, but it's like a whole college of people and all these competing interests. Yeah, when well, he's not here right now, so you go to talk to his mom. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, okay. So you find this co-rulership happening in other um, parts of the arc as well. Absolutely. I think you see it all over uh, the arc, and uh, it, that's okay. Um, and in titles, so let's go to the other end of the Mediterranean. Iberia um, has tons of examples of this, and the Iberianists have lived in uh, their own world and their own scholarship. And then, as we talked about earlier, it's slowly being brought into a wider medieval Europe. But it still just doesn't fit in some ways that I think are so fascinating. For instance, if we look at the, the case of Portugal, where we've got a king, Afonso Enriquez, who is a rex, um, and his wife is a regina, and his mom is a regina, and his daughter's a regina. And so what do we do with that? Uh, you know, is he's the king? Sure. Okay. But then all these women can't be a queen um, because there can only be one queen. So, I mean, how do we deal with that? And yet, you know, we also get the, you know, what the, the Capetian name is always the anticipatory association. You know, we get uh, coins and, and documents where we've got him and his son and his daughter all listed there. So, I mean, clearly he's indicating that they are all together in some fashion as rulers. So what does that mean? Um, and we don't like that because it doesn't fit the monarch model. Yes. So I would in, love in it. Those if, worlds... if, Go ahead. No, I'd love it if one of these people said, well, I am anticipatorily associated. <laughs> well, and there's some good stuff in there, too, because, for instance, you know, one of the, the queens uh, from I think it's Catalonia. No, it's Leon Castile. Um, she ends up marrying somebody from the Midi uh, in southern France, and she still uses this title queen, even though she's married to a count. Um, and sometimes the, uh, there's a local chronicle that's like, I don't know why she calls herself this. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, anyway, so you, you go through a number of themes like this um, in, in the book, and, and you find that the, uh, the these normative models just don't capture the messiness in our sources. But also that the messiness in our sources is significant for understanding the political culture in which these people lived. Yeah. Um, like it's part of the point, right? And co-rulership is often a way of solving certain kinds of problems mm -hmm. that would come up if you had this very restricted unitary view of a monarchy. Yeah. Um, and that solving well, you have different and different death rates and different, I mean, all kinds of things that help solve. Yeah. 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 Um, often just to um, bring two otherwise rival factions into some kind of balance. Like it's used for that as well, right? I, I, actually, going back to the very beginning, Diocletian brings in uh, Max, Maximian, his his co-emperor. You know, there's reason to think that that was a way of solving, a, heading off a potential conflict between the two. Um, anyway, so that this messiness is often a kind of political instrument um, that we that we can't see that well. Anyway. 
And the same is true for practices of succession um, and, and so forth. So let's turn to the lessons that we can take from the book in terms of practice. So what would you like medieval historians to do more or less of? I would love it if they would break out of silos. Um, and so if you study the Loire Valley, you know, look at the Seine Valley or, you know, God forbid, the Elbe uh, or what's going on. Um, you know, one of the things that really blew me away in this, um, uh, I was very grateful to be included in the pro project that Therese Martin was running at CSIC in Madrid. Um, and so I learned a lot about Las Cuelgas and in some of these uh, Iberian monasteries. And then I'm reading about you know, Theotokos Kicharatomene and like, wow, there are so many similarities to what's happening in these two places. Yeah. But there's nobody who studies Byzantium and Iberia in conversation with one another. So the scholarship has largely existed separately. Um, actually, there, I, I, there's one piece that, that does offhandedly refer to it by a Hungarian scholar uh, at CEU. Um, but so this is just really interesting stuff. And so I think we need to get out of our silos. And that means, and here's another big thing. That means um, reading scholarship in other languages in translation. Um, you know, I pick on a very famous scholar for not covering Eastern Europe because he doesn't read Slavic, uh, but including uh, sources in translation from mm -hmm. Arabic and Coptic. Um, and he's he says, I, I you know, I don't want to I don't read Slavic. So, you know, I can't possibly include this area. But then, you know, this other area is super important. So I'm going to use translations. Um, the DOML series, of which you're uh, an editor, right, is fantastic in creating these facing page translations. So if you are a Latin expert and want to read Greek, you can do that. If you are a Byzantinist and you want to read Old English, you can do that. Um, you know, it's the big failing, to be perfectly honest, is that they refuse to include Slavic. Um, and this is something I've talked to them about a couple different times. But, but that's a real issue because DOML is the gold standard and it is, in fact, shaping our sense of what the medieval world is. And so the medieval world is Greek text, Latin text, and old English text. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I remember some of those discussions. Um, and, you know, there might come a time. Let's hope it's an open-ended project um, in, in that sense, in, in what languages are included. Um, and this has come up often in many episodes um, that I've recorded of this podcast, which is that this is what translations are for. I mean, ideally, they're done by experts who, you know, are doing their best to render the text intelligible. And if you come across a passage that's very, very sensitive for your research and, and where you can't afford to get it wrong, well, on that one passage, you can consult another expert or two down the hall right? just to make sure that you're not relying on a translation that may have done, you know, some of the things that you point out in your book. I mean, translations, like think how many times translators used to take Romeos in a text and turn it into Greek or Byzantine mm -hmm. because they thought that's what it meant. Yeah. When it, it doesn't sense. Yes. Yeah. And, and how this affects titles and so on. This is what translations are for. And if we're going to be doing comparative work, we have to, no one can master all these languages. Or, right. or even really one of them, because by the time, let's say that you're a, you know, top shelf master of some particular language. Yeah, you're a philologist. You're, you're not a historian to begin with. Mm -hmm. And so you're not doing comparative kingship studies. Right. You're, do, you're doing philology. Um, so historians just have to get used to this. 
am I, so tell me if you think I'm wrong here, but I think that there's a stronger um, sense of expertise that's necessary for scholarship in Europe than in the US. In other words, that we're kind of more comfortable with, you know, cross-cultural working with translations, kind of engaging with other fields outside of our comfort zone. I find European scholarship sometimes is much more like, oh, no, I stick to what I'm credentialed to write on. And I, I think there are institutional practices that reinforce that. I mean, in, in the I, I think that's exactly right. Well, and, you know, you know, I don't know how many Austrian subscribers you have, but, you know, I can pick on the Austrians. I mean, I go to some of their panels that, at uh, Leeds, the IMC at Leeds, and they're speaking to each other, right? You have to have all of this information to understand what it is they're talking about. Um, and I, I think part of that actually goes back to educational models. Um, you know, I have to teach or have had to teach in my 16 years at Wittenberg world history and surveys for Russia, for medieval Europe, for all kinds of things. And I think when you're trying to explain something to an 18 year old, um, you learn different ways of talking about the material um, than if you consistently are just talking to other experts in the field or maybe your graduate students. Yeah. Um, and we have to change how we talk every, you know, generation of students, which is just round about every five years or so, yeah. <laughs> just to keep up. And I confess, I'm kind of lost track of, I don't know what world these kids are coming from anymore, but um, I used, to, I used to be with it. <laughs> sure. Yeah. But, they used to be one of the BMX bandits. <laughs> I used to be, what is this? this is from the Simpsons. I used to be with it, but now what I'm with is not it. <laughs> and it is scary and foreign to me. Um, yeah. Um, but really, there are embedded, um, like I said, institutional practices that exacerbate this. And I'll give you an example. In Greece, academic positions are advertised as, okay, we're we want to hire someone in this area of expertise. If I understand this correctly, I might get some email correcting me on this later, but if I understand it correctly, that means that if you're hired for that position, that's technically all you're supposed to teach. Like, I have been told by colleagues in Greece, oh, I can't teach that topic because it's not in the area of expertise that defined my hire. Oh, interesting. And furthermore, and this is where it gets vicious for scholarship. If you write something that's way out of that area, it doesn't count for your promotion because that's not what you were hired to do. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, that would really put a damper on any kind of cross-cultural or a comparative or anything. Exactly. Um, now, there, there's probably more flexibility in the system than I'm giving it. Um, but, you know, it's... Okay. So here's where it gets really problematic, where, you know, sometimes like they're inside candidates. Yep. Right. So the way that you, this happens everywhere, not just in Greece, just saying. No, okay. but it, it happens much more in Europe than it does in the States now, for sure. Uh, yes, but for, for, uh, for reasons that we can talk about, but yes. So one way to get your inside candidate hired is to, define the area of expertise you're looking for so narrowly yeah, that I know it, some of these stories yes that it quote photographs a particular person right yep. so it would be like saying we're looking to hire someone who works on like medieval slavic culture but who has expertise on titles of kingship yeah. right 
Well, if you know if you know of a job ad like that, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And specifically that modern mod whatever, whatever, whatever. <laughs> okay. And that so there's a trade-off. If you're that person, you're more likely to be the only person who fits the job requirements. Yep. However, that it locks you into that narrow expertise forever. Anyway, and it, it, I know these practices from Greece. If they happen elsewhere, and, and you know, it's probably not quite as restricted, but I think that perpetuates the siloing. Very much so. Yeah. And if you're counting medieval Europe and you're hiring somebody in medieval Europe anywhere in the world, the U.S., of course, we have the most medievalists. Um, if you're hiring somebody in medieval Europe, what you really want is somebody who works on England or France. Um, and, and that's a that's an issue, too. And in my own career, right, I've had this this struggle because I'll apply for medieval Europe jobs and I'm on the eastern periphery. Um, and they're like, really, you know, we're interested in, in France or England. Uh, and then you apply for, you know, Russian history or Slavic jobs. And really what they want is somebody who works on the empire or the Soviet Union. Um, so, you know, we've created the the more interesting areas. I mean, remember when the Mediterranean was first getting hot about you know, 15 years ago and everybody was like, oh, it's so sexy because it's this area with Islam and Christianity, you know, all inter yes. in integrated. And <laughs> I told somebody, I was like, you know, the Baltic is just as sexy. We've got pagans and Vikings and whatever. And they just laughed. And yeah, so. I know. No, you're right. <laughs> Every time I read about these Lithuanians. Yeah. It's, it's wild. I know. It's crazy. It's wild. Like these <laughs> existed. And so late. I mean, this is, yes. you know, a big pagan empire in Europe. So, yes. yeah. I know. Anyway. All right. Um, Christian, we digressed a lot. <laughs> but it was fun. <laughs> it was fun. fun. Um, and I, I hope everybody looks at the book. Um, it covers so much territory and it's it's always stimulating. I mean, there's a real argument here. And I, 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 I you know, I love it when you tear things down, put but put them back together again in a different way. Um, it's very well done. Say, what's next for you? Uh, next, I'm looking at titles. Um, so I'm looking at Greek uh, and Latin and Slavic sources for how uh, rulers were titled. So starting with Hungary, because there, I know there are Slavic Greek and Latin sources for Hungarian titles. And, and what was the king called? Uh, was he the king? Historically, we've said it transitioned from uh, a king of a people to king of a land. Right. Um, and in fact, there seems to be no concrete evidence that that, that changes. Um, and that within sources, it just seems to be it's Rex Ungarorum, but then it's Rex Hungariae, and we see these things happening back and forth. And again, like I mean, we were talking about earlier, without any hierarchy or specificity um, of now they're this, then they're this. That's fascinating. <clears throat> That's something I want to work on more too, um, especially within the Roman tradition. By the way, this idea of being the Rex of something or the Imperator of something or whatever, this stems from particular Roman ways of seeing peoples and titles and states and polities. It, it's quite interesting. Um, I will refer you to a passage in John Chrysostom who's talking precisely about um, who do we mean when we say Vasilevs? Right? And he says something like, and so I'm paraphrasing, well, when we're in church, we normally mean God. 
otherwise we normally mean like the one in the palace over there like of the romans but if we want to say something like of the persians we have to specify it or it doesn't make any sense like it, it's confusing so he's basically talking about like he's giving an index of specification of the context in which you have to modify the title to designate who you mean and how you like would it. do it. But the Roman tradition is almost always the plural people. Okay. Right. Roman, for example. Uh, but there are some variations. Anyway, it is a fascinating well, SP, topic. SPQR is 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 not of the people, is it? No, that is an uh, adjectival form. Yes. Right. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's right. Um, cool. Um, I look forward to that. So, Christian, thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me. This was a great talk. Yes. Um, and everybody read the book. So take care. Bye-bye.